If you have your Bibles, please flip them open to the Song of Solomon. Um, Song of Solomon, a very interesting book. If you've never read it, never gone to it, you might not know where it is. It's almost exactly midway in your Bible. So if you cut your Bible right in half, you'll be pretty close to it. If you hit Isaiah or Jeremiah, you've gone too far, you've got to back up. If you hit the Psalms or the Proverbs, you've got to go forward a little bit. But yeah, you'll, you'll get there. I have faith in you. But yeah, given the holiday that we're about to celebrate, um, Valentine's Day, but also the Super Bowl, I thought it'd be good to talk about, you know, the Song of Solomon and uh, talk about the, the beauty of love, because, you know, that's what Super Bowl is all about, too. So uh, something I forgot to mention for service, each one of these sermons is going to be different. So my first service sermon is different than this one. This is also not meant to be like a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse look at this book. Um, I'm instead doing more of an overview, more general things, and I'm trying to apply a lot of uh, my experience as a marital counselor to, to go through this particular uh, text and, and help you guys understand it a little bit better. Um, those of you guys who are not familiar with the Song of Solomon, it's called either the Song of Solomon, because Solomon is its author, or the Song of Songs, because it was considered like the best song ever. Uh, maybe that was just Solomon trying to one-up his old man and say, like, I got the song of songs. You know, I don't, I don't know. But you know, that's, that's something that's called as well. It's like the best song ever. And it's not meant to be understood like a song like one of the Psalms um, or, or just like a normal song you'd hear on the radio. It's actually more like, like an opera or a musical. Think of it that way. Like, it's, it's trying to tell a story. And the story that it's telling is almost certainly fictional, meaning it didn't, it didn't actually happen. And we know that from Solomon's history. We know that he was not exactly a monogamous guy. He was, uh, was kind of like the original Hugh Hefner before Hugh Hefner. He had about 300 wives, 700 concubines, which were women that he could have sexual relationships with without having to marry. So not exactly our uh, standard for good relationships, for sure. But he was a very wise man. And this is, this is an important point. Just because you understand something doesn't mean you're doing it. Solomon understood what love, what romantic love should look like. But he didn't actually practice it. And that was his mistake. So understand that as well. In the first service, what I did is I just took the first chapter and I, I looked at a lot of the contextual stuff. And I got into the book from that perspective this sermon, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty. So we're actually in chapter 4 of this book. And this book describes the passionate romantic love between a husband and wife. And it's not chronological. It's not like this is the beginning of the story, this is the end of the story. But it, it kind of jumps around in the relationship and really hones in. It really focuses on different aspects of the relationship. But it's the romance between a woman that we don't have the name of. In chapter 6, she's called the Shulamite, um, which is probably a reference to where she's from. She may have been from the city of Shunem. And Solomon, and it's about their romance. And it's very passionate, and it's very sensual, which is why a lot of churches don't ever teach on this book, which is a shame. I'm really, I'm really sad that a lot of churches don't get into this text because of how important it is. And if you want to understand more of its importance, you could listen to my first sermon. But in this chapter, what we have described for us is we actually have the man and the woman 
engaging in actual sensual acts. And it's described for us in very poetic format, in a very interesting format, and it's very beautiful, but that's what's happening right now. And we're going to be talking about the passion of romantic love. So let's, let's get into that. We're going to read the entire chapter, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, as it does help preserve a little bit of the poetic nature of the text. So if you're following in another translation, it may sound a little different, but the, the concept is the same. So this is verse 1. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves, like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow and night uh, and night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Come down from Mount Amana, from the peaks of Sinir and Hermon, where the lions have their dens and leopards live among the hills. You have captured my heart, my treasure, and my bride. You hold it hostage with one glance of your eyes, with a single jewel of your necklace. Your love delights me, my treasure, and my bride. Your love is better than wine, your perfume more fragrant than all the spices. Your lips are as sweet as nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Your clothes are scented with cedars of Lebanon. You are my private garden, my treasure, and my bride, a secluded spring, a hidden fountain. Your thighs shelter a paradise of pomegranates with rare spices, henna with nard, nard and saffron, fragrant calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense and myrrh and aloes, and every other lovely spice. You are a garden fountain, a well of fresh water streaming down from Lebanon's mountains. The young woman, raise and awake north wind, rise up south wind, blow on my garden and spread its fragrance all around. Come into my garden, my love, taste of its finest fruits. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word and and how beautiful and instructive it is to us in even the most intimate areas of our life. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to focus on this text and allow it to speak to us, to minister to us in a really profound way, that it would help us to understand and better practice our relationship with you, but also our romantic relationships. God would be instructed by this text, and we would be benefited by it. We love you, Lord, and in your name. Amen. Okay, so if while I was reading it, you got a little uncomfortable, may I suggest that the problem is not with the Bible. Perhaps the problem's with you. (laughs) I know you probably don't want to hear that, but if God inspired a book to talk this sensually about this act, and that makes you uncomfortable, perhaps the culture you grew up in made this ta- topic taboo, right? And because the, the culture you grew up in kind of tainted this, that's what's causing your uncomfortability. It's not the Bible itself, it's you. Remember, on the second page of the Bible, what you have is you have a naked man singing a rapturous love song over a naked woman describing how he wants to have, be intimate with her. Right, So from, from the second page of the Bible, we have an incredibly intimate and sensual picture of man and woman falling in love. So again, if, if we feel uncomfortable about this in church, 
again, may I suggest to you, it's not the Bible's problem, it's our problem. That maybe we've papered over verses and texts like this because we're uncomfortable about it. And here's the problem. If you're uncomfortable about texts like this, and you communicate to others with that uncomfortability and that shame, what you're communicating to them is that this is something to be ashamed of. And that filters down. It really does. People become ashamed of the sexual act. And what a lot of people do, myself included, is they begin to gravitate towards, because they, they like sensuality, they begin to gravitate towards sources that don't make them feel ashamed of their sexuality, but also don't promote godly sexuality. So, again, if we want the culture to win, if we want the culture to completely instruct the next generation on sexual ethics, continue to be embarrassed by this and don't talk about it. But if you want something better raised up, we're going to have to deal with our uncomfortability and start addressing these topics head on. So let's do it. So uh, the, the first thing that we get from this, this passage, like I said, very sensual, very intimate. And if you're older in the audience and you're reading this, you're like, I think I know what they're talking about, but I don't want to say it out loud in church. There are some very intimate things being mentioned here. And if you know what it's referencing, you can't unknow it. It's like, wow, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. But I, again, I don't want to say it out loud. And you're right. That is what he is talking about. He is using poetic imagery, poetic language to describe his wife in great detail. And by the way, there are other sections of this book where she does the same towards him. And again, it's very clear based on how they're communicating what they're doing while this conversation is taking place. Now, what I want to focus on in this passage is the nature of sensuality and passion in the romantic relationship. Now, unfortunately, again, in the church, we could come to this problem where we become so embarrassed about sensuality and about passion that we devalue it and pretend like it doesn't matter. It matters, right? So a lot of Christians, and they're right, but they're only right about one half of this. They will say, love is more of a choice than it is an emotion. You are correct. And you are definitely more correct than the world that says that love is all about emotion, right? So if I were to talk to the average teenager, and they're like, oh, I'm so in love. And I would say, well, what do you mean by that? How do you know you're in love? What they'll undoubtedly describe after that is some sort of over-the-top emotional experience that they have with the person that they're with. That's how they'll define their love. This is also why so many people in our culture are so bad at commitment. Because if your love is defined by and grounded in passion, that is a very weak and frail position to plant security in. The whole point of marriage, the reason why we vow to one another and we commit ourselves to one another forever is because we recognize that passion fades and you need to have something stronger than that to keep the relationship going. If you don't, then what you have is relationships that are incredibly shallow and they're on again and off again. They never get to depth and they never provide security. Right? So a lot of young people today feel very uncomfortable and insecure. This is why anxiety is such a huge problem in the younger generation, because they don't have security. They don't have relationships that are deeper than this, and so because of that, they feel like they always have to be, quote-unquote, on. They feel like they have to be 
always in a good mood, always providing like good services to those around them. They, they're afraid, terrified about being a burden to their relationships. They have an incredible social anxiety because they don't have commitment undergirding their passion. So understand that as well. Now, while commitment isn't really focused on uh, directly within this book, it is really the context of the culture it's being written into meaning that the the Israeli culture of the time was a culture of betrothal and arranged marriages, meaning that in that culture, the idea was you did not marry for romance, passion, or sensuality. You married because of an agreement. So the agreement actually came first. So for this culture, them talking about commitment would have been beating a dead horse. It would be completely ridiculous to even talk about it. So this book focuses primarily on the passion to discourage the overly religious view that passion doesn't matter or sensuality doesn't matter or physical attraction doesn't matter within marriage, which are all lies that can crop up in a society like that. If you were to write the Song of Solomon today, it would almost 100% be the beauty of commitment, right? So if you were to rewrite this book today, given the culture we live in, you would have to write this story in reference to commitment not sensuality and passion, because we got sensuality and passion in this culture all over, but what we don't have is commitment, right? We don't understand the importance and the beauty of commitment. And a quick note on that. If you want genuine passion to develop within a relationship, commitment is a necessary component. Commitment is an absolutely necessary component because, number one, passions ebb and flow. They wax and they wane. And once again, if you are out emotionally, whenever the passion starts to go away, you'll never be able to dig deeper and find the real roots and beauty of passion. You'll never be able to do that. The second reason is that true passion comes through genuine vulnerability. Notice how vulnerable these two are in this text. The way they're being described is that of total physical vulnerability and transparency. They are literally naked in front of one another. It's a very vulnerable place to be. So when you're thinking about the level of vulnerability necessary within a relationship like this, if you don't feel safe, you can't be vulnerable. If you don't feel safe, you can't be vulnerable. And if you can't be vulnerable, true passion can never emerge. So we have to understand those perspectives before we jump into this. Now, once again, in in the church... There is this idea that, again, we, we just don't talk about sensuality. We don't really talk about passion so much. So a lot of young Christians don't know how important it is. They don't know how important sensuality and passion are to a functional marriage. Now, again, people are right when they say that love is more of a choice. It is about commitment. But a commitment without passion is not a fun commitment. So there are people that, like, you know, they make it to the grave, But if you were to hang out with them, they're indistinguishable from roommates. There is no passion. There is no sensuality within their romantic relationship. And the younger generation is right to call that out and say, that seems boring. I don't know if I want that. Because you shouldn't want that. Right? The relationship that we have, marriage, is to be a direct reflection of God's intimate and passionate relationship with his people. That's what it's supposed to be a picture of. And if you don't think that God is passionate about you, if you don't think that God loves you 
and desires you and cares about you, that might be because your examples of love are devoid of passion. If you read the text of Scripture, it is impossible to come away with it without believing that God intimately, affectionately, and powerfully loves his people. One of my favorite passages is Zephaniah 3.17, where God actually describes writing love songs to his bride. And I, I love it. It's such, a cool, it's such a cool little note within Zephaniah. It says, he rejoices over you with singing. And I, I like that, that picture of God. Because, you know, we, we write a lot of love songs to God, right? Worship songs to God. And, you know, he, he's probably like, oh, that was a good try. You know, but God, I mean, God, God writes songs to you, man. Like, he is endeavored in the relationship. And, man, I, I can't wait to hear one of the ones that he's written about us. I think it's going to be really special when we hear it for the first time. So, so don't think that this is, this is something that can be lacking within a romantic relationship and to have it be sustainable. Now, a lot of what we're going to be talking today is how to get it in a correct way, and if you've lost it, how to get it back, right? The next point that I want to make is the idea of how he describes her. Now, if you didn't know anything about the relationship, you'd be like, this seems very superficial, right? Everything he's talking about only has to do with her physical appearance. He doesn't talk about anything beyond that. And uh, even the, some of the things that he says, he talks about her teeth. He's like, man, they look like, you know, white, white sheep. In other words, I see you floss. I recognize that, you know. <laughs> and he's like, each one has its twin. There's no gaps there. I like that. I dig that. You know, there, there's like funny things about that. Your lips are scarlet. You know, maybe she puts on a little lipstick. We're not really sure. Uh, he talks about her temples uh, standing out like pomegranates. So she probably has some rouge or some sort of makeup there. And it's really cool the way he's describing her. But again, you could come away from it thinking like, this seems like a very superficial relationship. And we miss the point. Superficial relationships, it's not that they focus on the physical. The reason why they're superficial is because they only focus on the physical. But a really passionate relationship does need physical attraction. And again, we'll talk about how to develop that correctly in a second. Now, whenever someone says, well, looks don't matter, they matter. And by the way, don't ever say that to your partner, because that will be very offensive. Ah, oh, looks don't matter to me. No, they, they do matter. They do matter. And it's important to let your partner know, like, I like the way you look. I appreciate you. I value your appearance. That's a very important part of a marriage. And if you don't do that, if that is absent from your marriage, again, passion is very difficult to develop. Because the bedrock of sensuality is physical desire. It is. If you, can't, if you don't have a development of physical attraction, sensuality will die on the vine. It can't exist. It can't exist. Also, again, by the way, superficial relationships can also be personality-driven. Right. So as a matter of fact, you know, me and my wife, we sometimes watch the show Catfish, which, you know, your kids should watch because it's just never get in online relationships. That's the message of the show, because everyone lies <laughs> online. That's what you see. Everybody lies online. It's all fake. It, none, none of it exists. But a lot of these relationships are developed without any physicality, meaning that they don't actually look at the person. There, there's nothing there. They're just writing letters. And some people would say, like, well, that's a much truer form of romance. It's a much more real form of romance because there is no physical attraction there. But what you realize 
is that number one, it's still very superficial because their minds are imagining the perfect partner. Meaning in the absence of an actual physical person in front of you, what they start to do is they start to imagine what the person looks like and they create, they create some sort of an amalgam that no one can actually ever look, live up to. So that's negative. The second problem is that you can have superficial emotional connection. Just like you could have a superficial physical connection, you can have a superficial emotional connection. So, you know, if you read some of these texts or messages, it's all just like, you're the, you're the best. No, you're the best. No, you're the best, you know? And it's very superficial. There's nothing really underneath it. It's just all sensual communication with no basis. There's no actual descriptions of personality. There's no connection to real life. There's no actual communication with one another, dealing with real and pertinent issues with one another. It's all just this superficial, sensual communication. That's, that's all it is. So don't think that if you're not seeing someone physically, you're immune to superficiality. You're not. When we're warning about superficiality, what we're warning about is never getting beneath the surface, never getting to actually know someone, to really know them, to really understand them, and to grow. Multifaceted and deep attraction is the most durable. If you only fixate on one aspect of attraction, it will fade and die over time. Okay, next problem. So, so some people look here, listen to what I just said and said, like, okay, well, so physical appearance is very important, but I'm not that attractive, right? I, I don't feel very attractive. I don't feel like physically I'm, I'm that appealing. Uh, now, we did talk about this first sermon, but in the beginning of the book, the Shulamite, the woman, admits that she lacks a physical characteristic that was most associated with beauty in their culture, pale skin. Now, it sounds weird to us because we live in the California, you know, Hollywood-induced culture that we live in where everyone has to be tan in order to be attractive. And that culture was the opposite. Tan skin was a symbol of low-class status. So the people who were tan in that culture were considered lower-class because they had to work outside. And she admits in the first chapter that she had brothers who were jerks, and they made her work outside, so she got tan skin. And so everyone thought that she was kind of ugly. By cultural standards, she was ugly in that, in that environment. Now, a couple things that are really cool to understand. Number one, her affirmation when she says, I am dark but beautiful in chapter one. Her affirmation of self is physical. It is physical but it is also self-discovered and not dependent on outer perspective. Meaning, if you struggle with people-pleasing, what that means is you have a shaky identity that ebbs and flows based on outer perspective. People must speak into your life for you to feel as though you are enough. If you develop that, you develop something else. We call it vanity. Vanity is the ever-growing passion for approval based on physical traits. So it's not enough that I look good. People have to tell me that I look good in order for me to feel like I'm enough. If you have that issue, which we all do to an extent, by the way, it's just the things that you find your value in may be different. 
So for me, my physical appearance doesn't mean that much to me. But my value as a man is mostly derived from what I provide. I, I look at it as added value to the relationship. And because of that, I'm very insecure about it. I'm very insecure about what I add physically to the relationship. My job, the way that I provide, the way that I protect, I'm very sensitive about those things because I'm insecure. And if I'm looking to my wife to validate that insecurity, I'm looking in to somebody, I'm putting a weight on her shoulders that she could never actually bear. So the first thing is, is if you want to become confident in who you are, it's never going to come from an outside source. Now, the alternative, our culture is like, exactly. Everyone in our culture would be like, amen, pastor, speak it. You know, because it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. It's only what you think about you. Okay, that is what narcissists say. Okay, you, you don't want to be a narcissist because a narcissist, a self-important jerk is the person who's like, everyone can say, but I'm awesome and I'm, I'm attractive and they just don't know good beauty when they see it. You're a, you're a jerk. You're self-important. You're arrogant. You're conceited, which is, by the way, worse than the vain person, right? And that's also me. So I, I, I can do that. I can be like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. I don't really care what you think. That's bad, right? Really, really bad, really evil, really negative. Okay, what happens from a Christian is actually the, the best verse in the Bible that describes this type of confidence and where it comes from is Psalm 139, In Psalm 139, David says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, David looks at his physical appearance and even his emotional and intellectual uh, ability, and he sees that as being crafted by God, intentional. You're not a mistake. You didn't just come out the womb and God was like, oh, okay, I'll work with that. No. (laughs) David says that you were formed in the womb. Your physical appearance was literally intended. Sometimes when we have depictions of heaven, like people look perfect. They look like the Greek gods or something, the Olympian gods. But we know from Jesus that that's not true. Jesus was specifically said to be a culturally unattractive person. Isaiah 53, he has no form or appearance that we would be attracted to him. Culturally, he was not a very physically appealing person. Yet when he rose from the dead, everyone recognized him as Jesus. It means he maintained his physical appearance. You're going to maintain your physical appearance in heaven. And nobody's going to look around and be like, oh, well, culturally, you're not very attractive. You know, too bad. You got to stay in that body forever. No, we, we become a little bit deeper in heaven, and we start seeing God's beauty in the way that he works and functions within a person. You know, it's funny. I This past couple of years, I started getting into woodworking, like making furniture, And back in the day, back in the day, making furniture was all about trying to make things look absolutely perfect. And the reason why they did that, by the way, is so that you don't recognize assembly line furniture. Meaning that if everything looks perfect, you could just put things on an assembly and everyone has the same piece of furniture and no one notices. What I found today is that people will pay more for handmade furniture that has flaws in it because the flaws speak of character. And they speak to the fact that it was crafted with care as opposed to just pumped out of an assembly line. God crafted you with care, which means that there are imperfections in your makeup. But they are qualities that were intended. So she looks at her appearance, which, by the way, she didn't get from being born. She got from cultural things, right, from, from having to be outside, 
right? Something happened to her that made her less physically appealing, but she found confidence in who she was in God. That's a foundation, because here's the deal. Neediness in a relationship is one of the main things that destroys passion. Neediness in a relationship destroys passion. Because what neediness does, right, there is a type of affection that is derived from neediness. It's parental nurturing. So when my daughter comes to me and she's needy because she's one and a half, my eyes light up. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. She needs me, you know, and it, it makes me happy. But what it doesn't engage is it doesn't engage sensual passion, meaning if my wife comes to me with the same level of neediness, it turns off passion. And when a husband comes to a wife being needy, the same thing happens, except for faster. right? Women, women, it happens much faster. For a man, we're like, yes, I'm needed, and it makes us feel good for a second, and then it turns off the passion. For a woman, immediately, like, she associates it with mom, you know, and she's like, I- I'm totally turned off now. So... It's funny, when I, when, I talk to, when I talk to men, especially about sexual issues, a lot of men, when they bring up sexuality with their wives, do it in a very needy way, and they can't figure out why their wives are never in the mood. Here's why. Because you're coming to her like a child. You're coming to her empty and needing her to fill you up. And what that communicates is, I don't love you, but I need you right now. I need you for something. What people want is they want to be desired. And desire can only exist when the need is met. Desire can only exist when the need is already met. It would be kind of like if I took a gourmet meal and I gave it to someone starving to death. They're not going to appreciate that thing. They're going to wolf it down. The only person who could really enjoy all the intricacies of a gourmet meal is someone who's already full who could taste it and delight in it as opposed to scarfing it down like a starving man. Passion can only exist in a relationship where the needs are already met. Where the needs are already met. So be very careful about neediness within a relationship. This cannot be faked, by the way. Either you have become complete in God, Colossians 2 verse 10, you are complete in Christ, or you're not. And it will come out in the way you communicate and the way you act, right? And it will breed resentment and bitterness over time if you're not careful. The second thing is, again, there's this idea, there's this idea, and this is the number one lie of passion, where passion comes from. The number one lie of passion that exists in our culture is that passion is someone else's responsibility. So in other words, if I am not attracted to you, you need to do better. If I'm not attracted to you, you need to become more attractive. You need to get surgery. You need to work out more. You need to eat less. You need to wear these kind of clothing. You need to do your hair in this kind of way. That is a lie. Whenever you think that passion comes from outside, it's something that someone else has to do, you've become a lustful person. Lust is passion that is derived from unhappiness and discontentment. Lust is, I am unhappy with what I have, and so I want what someone else has, or I want what I had. That's lust. Love is, I am content right where I'm at, and I desire you. That's love. 
And if you're like, well, that doesn't really sound like love. I mean, isn't it good to encourage people to be better? Think about the way that God loves you. Think about the way that God loves you. Is his love without passion? No. But does God sit up in heaven and say, ah, you're just not that attractive to me? And by the way, he's the only person who could say that, right? He's like, you're kind of batting out of your league there, kid. You know, I'm kind of God, and you're just some mess up who screws up my entirely perfect creation and made my son die. Like, I'm not attracted to you. God could easily do that. The way I, it was put to me once, which I really like, is lust looks past what is good in order to be unhappy. Love looks past what is corrupt in order to see beauty. So if you want to be a more passionate person, and you're like, well, our marriage is not very passionate right now. You know, a lot of the, the fire's gone out. Guess whose fault that is? It's your fault. It's always your fault. And you're like, well, no, I mean, my partner stopped trying. Okay, well, then, you know, that's on her end as well, or his end as well. But it's still your responsibility. Are you taking up your side? And you're saying, I want to be a more contented person. I want to be a more passionate person. I want to be a more loving person. God, help me to see in my partner what you see in them. Help me not to compare them to the cultural perspective of beauty and to be dissatisfied with what you've given me. Help me to be content. There's a movie, actually, that I like. Most people didn't like it. Um, I think it would have been better on Broadway. I wish I would have just watched it on Broadway. But it's called Into the Woods. I don't know if you saw it. But it's, it's, actually, it's actually pretty cool. And it retells some classic fairy tales, which I love fairy tales. And one of the stories that it retells is Cinderella. Now, in this story, this prince, you know, he falls madly in love with this, this girl, Cinderella. They get married. And then he immediately cheats on her. It's a little bit different than the fairy tale you know. Later on, she comes to him and she says, why would you cheat on me? And he said, because when I married you, I thought I would want for nothing else. This is the truth. This is where lust comes from. This is where unhappiness comes from. When I look at my wife and I say, it's your responsibility to make me passionate. It's your responsibility to make me attracted to you. It's not. It's yours. It's yours. You need to see that it's your problem. If you're not attracted to your partner, that's something that needs to shift in you. Now, once again, someone could come back and say, like, well, they've really let, you don't understand. They've let themselves go. They don't care, right? They, they've checked out. Okay, but here's the problem. Even if they didn't, you would still struggle with lust. Even if they didn't, they, you would still struggle with lust. And we see this all the time. The best place to see it is in celebrity marriages. How often does infidelity happen in celebrity marriages? These are the most beautiful people in the world. And infidelity happens all the time in celebrity marriages. Why? Because it's a lie. It's a lie to say that there is a certain level of physical beauty that would make me attracted to you. That's just untrue. Temporarily, yes. Long term, no. Because no matter what you have, you will always be plagued with the thoughts of what you don't have. That's how lust works. Passion is your problem. If you want it to grow in your relationship, you must pursue your partner and seek to develop passion internally. What that can do, by the way, is I'm not saying don't take care of yourself, right? Sometimes when I'm counseling couples, I'm like, hey, you know, maybe you should shower, you know, <laughs> before you, before you like come. There's, there's a cool passage I was going to read it later, but in Song of Solomon 2, she says, do not awaken love until it pleases. 
And there's a lot of ways to take it, but one of the ways that you can take it is that there's a time and a place for passion. There's a time and a place for passion. It's not all the time. You shouldn't be passionate all the time. There are certain settings where it's okay to dial down the passion and to focus on something else. But what she's also saying is that because there is a time, do not awaken love until it pleases, it means that there are, you know, we use this term, I'm sorry to use it right now, but foreplay. There's a, there's a way to kind of get things going before you just jump in, right? And it's okay to want to present yourself attractively to your partner. Say, like, I want to take care of myself because you know what that shows? It shows that you value your partner. It shows that you value your partner. If you're like, well, they already married me, so they, they, they already knew, they saw the catalog before they bought it, so whatever. <laughs> if that's your attitude, then your passion's going to go out of your marriage. It just will. It just will. You should want to be attractive to your partner. That doesn't mean, once again, it's not on you to, be, to make them attracted to you. But once you have that intimacy and that passion, you can actually grow it and develop it by working on yourself, saying, I'm going to work on my hygiene. I'm going to work on the way I present myself to my partner, my speech, because sometimes we turn off one another just by the way we talk and we don't even recognize it, um, which is, by the way, a huge, huge thing. As a marriage counselor, I tell you, a lot of the couples that I counsel, very attractive, young couples, very attractive young couples, but passion has gone out of the relationship and it has nothing to do with physicality. It's because speech has been adopted within the relationship that emasculates and destroys passion. Whether it's nagging, whether it's criticizing, whether it's speech that is hurtful, it eventually just destroys the passion. So again, I should want to make myself more attractive to my partner. But I also recognize that if she is going to be attracted to me, something has to happen in her heart. But I want to do it because I value her. And I'm going to show that I value her by taking care of myself. That's what that means. And again, you could tell that this is an internal decision. It's something that you want to do, right? You want to do. Because another thing that destroys passion is being told to do it. Right? So if your partner's like, you kind of repulse me. You know, you need to work on this. You may work on it, but again, that you just really annihilated the passion in your relationship. You can't, you can't talk like that. So if you're, if you're going to develop this kind of thing, it has to come from unconditional love and affection, and then you can develop desire from there. But that has to be the bedrock. Unconditional acceptance and affection, then you build on top of that what we call desire. Desire. That happens. The next thing that's interesting about this is that it's actually not, it's actually not spontaneous. So some people, when they look at this, they're like, oh, it's spontaneous. No, it's not. Anyone who's tried to write poetry knows that that just doesn't come out of your mouth, right? You don't just naturally talk like this. This is something that he intentionally thought through and delivered to his partner with care. In other words, he thought through what would she appreciate in the way that I communicate. He knew the things that she values about herself. And he knew the things that he could compliment that would help her and encourage her. And he focused on them intentionally. There is intentionality to his passion. Esther Perel, who, uh, she's a marriage counselor, not a Christian, by the way, but she writes this, uh, well, she says this in a speech called The Secret of Desire, and uh, it's really cool. She says, erotic couples understand that passion waxes and wanes. It is pretty much like the moon. It has intermittent eclipses between, but what they know is how to resurrect it. 
They know how to bring it back. They know how to bring it back because they have demystified the one big myth, the myth of spontaneity, which is that it's just going to fall from heaven while you're folding laundry like a deus machina. And in fact, they understood that whatever is going to happen has already happened in a long-term relationship. Committed sex is premeditated. It is willful. It is intentional. It is focus. It is presence. That's the way it looks. You have to intentionally be present with your partner. It's not just going to develop on its own. What happens in marriage over time is we start to develop our own lives. Our individuality starts to come back, and we start to do our own thing, and we neglect the things that draw us closer together as a couple. If you want quality time, you must invest a quantity of time. That's how passion works. It has to be intentional. I am intentionally pursuing my partner. And if you make passion the goal, you will never get it. But if you make intimacy the goal, you will get passion on top of it. So in other words, if my goal is I want more sex in our relationship, I want more sensuality, so I'm going to do all these romantic things and I'll get that in return. You've missed the point, and you're not going to get it. But if your intent is, I want to draw closer to my partner because I value them. I love them, and I want to reflect God. And you begin implementing things like this within your relationship, you will begin to make a difference, and you'll notice passion will come along with it. That's how that works. Also, another point about this intentionality. You know, I've, I've talked to so many couples over the years and it's usually the guy, and I don't want to beat up on guys, but I'm a guy, so I feel like I can. Um, I, I, feel, I feel like if I talk about women, people are like, you don't know what you're talking about. And you're right, you, I don't. So, so sorry, guys, I'm going to beat up on you a little bit. I talk to a lot of guys, and they're like, well, I know what she wants. She wants these, you know, like amazing romantic gestures, and she wants me to take her on trips to, you know, Paris or whatever, and I don't have the money to do that. And I'll always follow up and ask them, what is something romantic that you have done for your wife recently? Anything. And usually it's just a blank stare. And I'm like, okay, I get that she wants these grand things, and maybe there's an issue with her expectations. Maybe you're right. But maybe she just wants something from you. And these examples to her elicit passion. So try something. Right? You can't take her to Paris? Okay, take her to a cabin one weekend. Go on a trip. Buy her a birthday card that you wrote as opposed to just buying what someone else said and signing your name at the bottom, right? Figure out what's her favorite flower. Try to buy that for her. Make them feel special through things you know they like. That's something you have to do. That's intentional. And women, same thing. You can't just be like, well, you know, it's, a, it's on the man to make romance happen. No, it's not. It's on both parties. If that perspective exists within the relationship, then the relationship will die. You have to understand that romance and passion is a two-way street. Both partners have to be intentional about it. They have to be. And again, that's another great myth, is that sex is more just a man's thing. It's not. Sex is important to a relationship. And if sex is struggling within a relationship, that's bad for the relationship. And there's this idea that it's like, well, guys will just like it no matter what. That's not true. That's not true. What we want in intimacy, the reason why sensuality is so important to us is because it speaks of a need to be close, to draw close. God has given us a physical ability to literally become one with each other. 
That's something that God has given us, and it's beautiful, and it is reflective of how God has become one with his people via his Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's not just the act or what comes at the end of the act. It is everything that goes before, everything in the middle, and everything after. It is about the intimacy of the relationship. Because if it's only about the end, then it is empty and hollow, and it could be gotten anywhere. It could be gotten anywhere. What's special about the marriage is that that is the accumulation of the intimacy that you've already invested within it. And if you don't even know how to talk about these things with your partner, that could also be problematic. Because like I said, some of the things I said about hygiene and stuff like that, you're like, I would never say that. You need to. If there are things that your partner is doing that is turning you off, it's good to communicate that to them. Because they might be oblivious. They might not understand why is she never in the mood? Why or why is he never in the mood? Why does it always seem like I'm trying to, I have to initiate all the time? And they're, they're never into it and they're not receptive. Maybe it's because these deep conversations that make us uncomfortable need to happen. Maybe there's something occurring inside the relationship that needs to be talked about. And we need to get over our uncomfortability or again, the passion in our relationship will dry up and it will perish, and we need to be careful. Another thing that that people misunderstand is the idea of commitment, that commitment kills passion. This is why so many couples today don't get married, because they think that commitment kills passion. We've talked about it a little bit already, but that's just not true. Commitment does not kill passion. What kills passion is the knowledge that I am never going to have anything else. In other words, we are naturally lustful, and we like the perspective of opportunity. Once you get married, it closes that door, and it awakens lust to a large level. What we need to understand is when we have that idea, it's a stupid idea of maybe I marry the wrong person, maybe if I was with this person, it would be better, maybe if they looked more like this, that's lust, and it will never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied. You know, I have actually counseled couples where they have left their partner, they've left their husband or wife for another person. And you know what happens when they do that? The same problems exist in that relationship because the problem wasn't your previous spouse. It was you. It was your heart that was dissatisfied and is constantly looking for ultimate contentment in a source that can't provide it. Full people are loving people. 1 John 4, verse 10. Beloved, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as propitiation for our sins. So there's much more I could say about that passage, but study it and understand. And by the way, real quick, those of you guys who are curious, I do love Valentine's Day. I think it's a great holiday. Why? It's kind of like Christmas. It's kind of like birthdays. It's like we know these things. I know that Jesus was born. I know he was incarnate at a certain time in history, but it's good to have a day on the calendar where I could just focus on it. I love my wife. I care about her. But there is a goodness to having a day on the calendar that reminds me, Peter, you need to grow your romance with your partner. Don't get into a rut of doing the same thing day in and day out and then be surprised when the passion goes away. You have to be intentional about these things, and days like this can help us. So again, much more I could say about it, 
really, I, I could do probably 50 sermons on this topic, but I hope this at least gives you guys an encouragement to get more into this book, to read it more, and to develop passion within your relationship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are deeply passionate about us, even though we are so unworthy. Lord, we have nothing that would attract you to us. Lord, we are sinful. We are hard of heart. We are stubborn. We are foolish, Lord, and yet you love us so affectionately and so beautifully, Lord. I pray that we would learn from your example. We would learn to develop passion in our hearts as opposed to becoming lustful and resentful towards our partners. Teach us to be more giving. Teach us to be more sacrificial and to see that as the pathway to goodness in a relationship. Help us to be more open about topics like this and not to be uncomfortable, Lord, as a church. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you provided for us in your word, in your name. Amen.